Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Mark Fraley Podcast. Today is July 14th, 2023. It's an overcast Friday morning here in Nashville. It's supposed to be sunny today with a chance of storms. Beth and I are getting the garden ready to host a visit from the Second Sunday Garden Club this weekend. This should be a fun time showcasing what we are doing here in our garden with native plants. As always, thanks to Ron Trammell for our hip intro music. It is certain that Tennessee figured importantly in the Civil War, with major battles at Franklin, Shiloh, Stones River, and Chattanooga. For the most part, the National Park Service has naturally taken the role of managing the historic parks associated with these battles. There is one notable exception, and that is Fort Pillow State Park, out along the Mississippi River in West Tennessee. This, of course, was the site of a Union fort occupied in part by black Union soldiers. The fort was raided and many black soldiers were tragically massacred, allegedly after they had surrendered. And so yesterday I had sat, I sat down with, to talk with uh, Robbie Tidwell, the area manager of this Fort Pillow Park. I was interested to hear about his background and what brought him into parks and recreation as a career. We also learned a little about the challenges of managing a park, which stands as an important memorial to such a tragic event. As part of our conversation, we talk about the burial of black soldiers after the battle. After we concluded our, inter our interview, Robbie sent me a note to clarify that the graves were removed to the National Cemetery in Memphis in, in 1867. However, there were certain soldiers with local family connections who collected their remains soon after the battle concluded. And so I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Robbie Tidwell. And we will get started right after this brief message. Hi, this is Heather Lose, Editor-in-Chief of the Tennessee Conservationist Magazine. Every year, we publish six beautiful issues packed full of timely and informative stories about Tennessee culture, people, and places. You can stay informed about your world and all the great things happening in your Tennessee state parks. It's easy to subscribe. Just go to our website at tnconservationist.org. Thank you. Robbie Tidwell, welcome to the Mark Fraley podcast. Thank you, Mr. Moore. I'm glad to be here. Rob, it's nice to, nice to meet you and to have an opportunity to chat with you. Um, I have not been to Fort Pillow State Park probably since about 1987 or 88. Um, and... Um, I remember at that time there were lots of issues going on on there, um, but it's it's a remote place to visit, and I want my listeners to to learn about it. Uh, you know, it's it's one of the few Civil War uh, era parks parks that we have in ten, in Tennessee State Parks. I know Johnsonville's got a little bit of, of Civil War era stuff going on. Uh, but other than that, uh, Tennessee State Parks doesn't really have a lot to offer in terms of Civil War history. The federal government certainly does with Shiloh and Chickamauga and all, you know, the battlefields around. Um, 
But let's, as we get started, let's learn about you a little bit. Uh, tell, tell me, uh, Robbie, where are you from? Are you a Tennessee native? And what got you interested in the career in parks? Well, I've been here. Uh, I started at Fort Pillow in May of 2000. So wow. uh, I grew up farming. That's, what, that's pretty much what I did. We did hay sides, briggs, and cattle. So uh, once I joined college, I joined a fraternity. One of my fraternity brothers called and said, hey, Fort Pillow's got a heavy equipment operator position and a weed eater position open. You ought to apply for it. I'm going to be an SIR there this summer. And so I called the manager at the time and, and uh, put in an application. And, and so farming had slowed down that summer. So I was able to work here and still farm in the afternoons. And uh, once I started, I was soil and water conservation. That's what I was going to school for. Okay. And where, and was was, you, where were you going to school? UT Martin. Okay, Martin, certainly. Yeah, yep. And uh, so I, I got here about halfway through the summer. I actually changed my major to park and rec. I fell in love with the job, all the people here at the park. Uh, I just, I felt at home, I guess you would say. So I started my career here working summers in May of 2000. And then I came back the following summer. And then I started doing what they call a nine-month position. Okay. And so I stayed there until the following summer. And then I transferred into an SIR position, which is seasonal interpretive ranger. Right. And I stayed there. And then hired on full-time at another state park and stayed there for about a year and a half. And they asked me to move back because they had, no, they had both positions open here at the time. Okay. Uh, the manager was here, but no ranger position. I see. And the manager was looking to transfer out. So I I took that and moved moved back here after about a year and a half. And I actually worked this park and the other park, both parks, for six now, months. Which was, which was the other park? I was at Mousetail Landing State Mousetail. Park. Mousetail. Okay. Love that place. And uh, so I stayed, I worked both places for about six months. And then I was back here and I stayed here for about a year. And the manager here at the time uh, uh, transferred out. I interviewed for the manager's job and got it. Okay. So uh, I've been here since May of 2000 for the last going on 18 years, I've been the manager. Terrific. I, and, you know, I have to tell you the, the, um, the impetus for calling you and trying to arrange this meeting, I got a, uh, or this interview, I got a, an email from my brother and he said, Mark, you need to interview this guy at, at Fort Pillow. And he had read and the article that was published uh, this spring in Smithsonian Magazine about what you're doing there and about the park, but really focused on what you're doing there. Um, a terrific article, by the way, uh, in Smithsonian Magazine. Uh, listeners can find it online. Um, and uh, so that was the, the impetus to, to give you a call and to reach out to you. Um, congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you. The, um, let me ask you one other question about your background. You, you talked about your major in Parks and Recreation at, at Martin. And of course, that has been a place where many of our park managers and rangers have trained. Um, I, I'm wondering whether Dr. Lavely was still there when you were, when you were going to school there. Yes, Philip, Philip Lavely, was that your major professor? Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, he's, a, he's an old friend of mine, just, a, just a terrific, terrific guy. And, uh, really, um, as I said, uh, many, many of our park rangers are graduates of that program. And, and it's, it's, a it's a credit to the, to, to UT and to the state parks. Uh, I remember that Phil, that Dr. Lavely was really into campgrounds and campground design. You're, you're nodding your head and smiling. I can tell, I, tell, I remember that class very clearly. 
<laughs> he he had a buddy named named Dick Cottrell who uh, had 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 uh, really revolutionized the whole uh, practice of how you design a campground, and um, and I noticed in the article that you have you have renovated your campgrounds and added some campgrounds there at at Fort, yes, at, at, Fort at, at at Fort Pillow. Tell us about that a little bit. Well, when I started here as manager, there was 40 campsites, all of which were primitive. You had two bathhouses. So Fort Pillow is a big park. So for people to come in, if they want to tour the entire park, the trails, the museum, everything the park has to offer, it's hard to do that in one day. The park's 1,642 acres. Right. So I knew I had to have something that were remote. We're 35 minutes from any small town extremely remote. I knew I had to have some way for families that wanted to learn the history of Fort Pillow or just use it for recreation to be able to stay the night comfortably. So uh, I worked at the time with the county mayor and the state to get the the funds to redo the campground. I knew I had to have RV hookups in order to get RV campers to come in. So the money was put in. We started around 2014. And when I got here, I actually eliminated several sites for safety reasons. Just mm-hmm. they didn't need to be there. So I, I went down from uh, 40 sites to 32 sites immediately. And now we have 30 sites. Of those 30 sites, we've got 11 of them, uh, or actually right now there's 11 of them are RV sites. That's 20, 30, 50 amp, concrete pad, asphalt going to the pad. Of course, you got your table firing grill. Right. Two new bathhouses. We got sand volleyball and horseshoe pits. And of course, all the roads inside the campground are repaved. We've also got nine primitive sites and 10 uh, 20 amp tent sites. So if they want to stay in a tent and be able to plug up a fan, charge their phone, sure. whatever, they, they can do that camping as well. Sure. So we completely renovated the campground. And for my top five for this year, I requested to have four more of the tent, 20 amp tent sites that are inside the North Loop to be converted to RV as well. Just because the demand grows each year for that. You must be getting pretty good utilization to to want to make that request. Yes, sir. The yeah. uh, July and August are are not real big months for us for camping. They slow down everywhere because of the heat, of course. Right. But uh, during camping during camping months, uh, we we fill all the RV sites up normally on weekends. Super. Well, let's get back to basics now, and and let's talk about about the park and why we have a Fort Pillow State Park and where it is. And um, so t- tell us a little bit about your location, first of all. Well, Fort Pillow is in Henning, Tennessee, along the Mississippi River. We're about an hour and a half north of Memphis. So it's not too far from Memphis, but our closest towns would be Ripley and Covington. Right. And then, of course, Dyersburg is not too much further away. But uh, most time when they call, we're, we're basically an hour and a half from Memphis. People people recognize Memphis. Right. We are we're a very remote park, so it, most it, people it, don't just get lost and wind up before Pillow. They they want to come before. Do I recall my my highway numbers? If you're running north and south along the the river, going from Memphis to Covington, is that Highway 52? Is that 51? 51. Okay, I I was pretty close. But from from Highway 51, you're about, would you say, 15 miles 
back there's from a sign, there. As soon as you turn off of, of Highway 51 on the Highway 87 West, there's a there's a sign sign there telling you're 17 miles from 17. Seven. Okay, so that you know that is a pretty remote place, uh, and and then it's even further certainly from whatever interstate that. So this this is a park because of it was it was the historic location of. Uh, of, of a Civil War fort. And I understand that fort was initially built by the Confederacy. Tell us, tell us what the history of that. It was built by Confederate soldiers. It was finished in 61 and abandoned in 62. Union soldiers occupied it from, from 1862 until, of course, the Battle of April 12th, 1864. Okay. Made up of uh, a lot of the USCT soldiers, as well as the 13th White Tennessee, your uh, white Union soldiers as well. And April 12, 1864 is the Battle of Fort Pillow. Say, the, say the, the date again. April 12, 1864. Okay, 1864. So initially built by the Confederacy, and I presume uh, to some degree by conscripted uh, labor, uh, uh, slave labor. Correct. Uh, a, lot of the, a lot of stuff that I have indicates that 1,500 or 2,000 slaves would have been used during the, the building of Fort Pillow. Gracious. Um, and then you say it was abandoned, or or was it taken over by the by by the? I use abandoned. There were uh, gunboats, of course, were shelling Fort Pillow during the time frame the Confederate soldiers were here. But uh, we used abandoned because they left it. They just basically packed up and left. Okay. And abandoned Fort Pillow, and uh, and then a little time frame after the abandonment of Fort Pillow is when the Union soldiers came in and took it over. Right, along with the with the. Uh, so-called colored uh, regiment. Um, USCT, yes, sir. U.S. colored troops. Okay. Yes, sir. Now, as the as the park is situated today, is is the relationship with the river the same as it was at that time? No, sir. Uh, T tell us about that. I know the Mississippi River is, tends to meander. It does. So basically, the, the what we what I call the main fortification. It is by no means the main fortification, but I use that term because that's where the majority of the battle took place. And that's what, when the people come here and want to see the fort, that's the what they go to. So Fort Pillow's got roughly five inner forts. It's made up of five miles of outer earthworks. So it's a very large fortification. Gracious. The river, the river ran right by what we call the main fortification, or what I call the main fortification. And uh, that was one that was built on top of the bluff to block off the Union artillery boats on the Mississippi River. So with that being said, that whole waterway right now is actually just Cold Creek. In 1908, the Mississippi River changed course. Okay. So you basically have Cold Creek, which flows into the chute, which would have been the old riverbed, the old Mississippi Riverbed. And uh, so now that lake is used for commercial fishing, uh, skiing, you know, outdoor water, water, water activities. Okay. And so is Cold Creek. And uh, so only way you can actually reach the river from Cold Creek or the chute is during a flood. If you have a small enough boat to go through the woods to get to it. So the river's several miles, I guess you would say, from where it was during that time frame. But that, that changed course in 1908. I see. We actually have an area here on the park we call Slip-In. It's an observation area. And up until recently, it was just a parking lot with a wooden fence. And you could view the river now versus the river prior to 1908. So you're looking at the chute. Uh, this past year, we put a 16 by 40 observation deck in. 
so people can now get on the deck and overlook the rivers, the, the old river versus the new river. Okay. And uh, we're still working on signage for that. So we'll try to figure out how I want. I had signage on the old fence that sort of had arrows pointing. And I'm sort of going to go back with that, I think, just so people understand what they're looking at. Right. But at the same time, I want to make it as modern as possible so that it goes along and goes in line with the rest of the signs we have throughout the park. Got you. Well, I guess it would be a challenge, certainly a challenge to, to, uh, to interpret to the visitor, to explain to the visitor the relationship between the river and the fort as it was and then as it is now. So, um, well, and, uh, one of the ways that we're actually several years ago, sort of a, sort of the program initiative that, that I've, that I've started. I worked with several, uh, UT extension and different stuff like that and got grants to purchase watercraft. So I've got canoes and kayaks. So one of the things that I started several years ago is I unload onto Cold Creek and we do canoe flows or kayak flows down Cold Creek. We're basically going the path of the river during the Civil War. So they can see where the fort would have been, locate where the river batteries would have been during that time frame. You can actually leave there, go out into the chute, which is still your Tennessee-Arkansas line, and you can actually turn and see the observation deck from the water. And that's worked really well for people who just couldn't grasp. I understand, according to your map, your river was here, but it's no right. longer there. But the right. fort's there. I just can't grasp in my mind what that looked. <laughs> and I'm like, well, would you be interested in a in a canoe float? And so some of them, the ones that are able to, love it, and uh, they 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 come back year after year and do those with us. But I just acquired a uh, pontoon boat. Okay. And uh, so now, hopefully, this month we'll start doing. Uh, Lower River Battery pontoon tours, and so I can show people the area from the water where the where the gunboats would have been during the Civil War. So you're getting a water view of it instead of having to from the land. Because I mean, we're it's, it's we don't own the state parks don't own everything down to the water. Right. So there are houses down there, and there are woods blocking the view during the summertime. And so a lot of people when they show up, they think they're going to walk up to the fort. They're going to look down, they're going to see the river. Right. Change course, and now it's Cold Creek, which is nowhere near the width of a river. It's just a creek. And so during heavily dense times in the summertime, you really can't see the water. Right. Only in the wintertime can you see the water. So, But right. we don't own the land between the fort and the water in order to clear that. So, now do what, Did I understand you correctly t uh, to, to say that the boundary of the state of Tennessee in this instance is on the eastern side of the Mississippi River. Well, uh, we've got a little bit of Arkansas on on this side of the river. Correct. Right. And then there's a little bit of Tennessee on the other side of the river as well. <laughs> yeah, and that's because the boundary was fixed the route, by the route, was the, boundary. the route that was the boundary. Exactly. That's so that's if fascinating. Shoot, if you're in a chute and halfway in the middle of it, you're at the Arkansas Tennessee line. So do you have to get out-of-state travel permission to to go down through there? From my knowledge, it recognizes both. But in, all, in order to access that chute from Arkansas, you've got to be in floodwater, so you can't get to it. So you you're can't going to have really to unload on a state ramp to get in it. So. That's so interesting. All right, so let's talk a little bit about about what the visitor will encounter when they when they visit your, your park. Um, I know that... Um, it became a park, uh, it opened as a park sometime in the in the 70s and had a, 
had a, a visitor, not a visitor center, but a park office and a, and, a, and then a, a visitor center uh, at that time. Yeah. Um, I remember the, the crew that was, that did the first interpretive displays in that, in that visitor center and, um, trying their best to portray what, what occurred there. Um, and I remember at the time there was some serious pushback by Sons of the Confederacy and some others about, about the, the, um, the narrative that was, was given by the exhibits. Uh, thankfully, the state did not um, give in to the false narrative that folks were trying to push. Um, and, and left those exhibits as, as they were, as they were developed by scholars. Um, I remember though, that the, the exhibits were, were quite meager. They were not elaborate or, uh, sophisticated by any means, uh, but just a basic set of exhibits. Now, have, am I correct that you guys have, have renovated those recently or tell me about that? Uh, so the museum, uh, it was. It was. It needed a lot of a lot of work done. So right. uh, it had a lot of a lot of push pin boards in it with a piece of paper thumped back to the wall that you could read. It had some cannons in there and some displays. It served its purpose, but it, it really needed to be modernized. Uh, so I guess I'll start back around the 2015 range. I worked with the Mississippi River Corridor. They came in. So uh, State Museum. A whole lot of people were involved in the information that goes on these panels. And what we call the exhibit hall, I guess you would call it, uh, all those panels have been redone. Okay. Everything was taken out. And the panels going throughout the museum are more modern style panels, a lot of which talks about the USCT. Uh, it goes all the way around the life of Civil War soldier. Uh, you know, it, they basically cover the whole exhibit hall part of the museum. So when you first walk in, another issue we had would be like in your gift shop area. We had counters that where the, the clerical staff would sit. Uh, it didn't meet any of the needs, uh, requirements that we needed to have within a state building. So we tore all that out. So when you first walk in, now everything has been redone. We got uh, 10 on the wall, on the bottom of the walls, 10 ceilings with uh, recycled wood walls to make it look more of a historical type structure. So when you first walk in, that's all your gift shop area, your point of sale, your maps or trail maps uh clerical staff is there and then so once you pass that point that's where the museum starts mm -hmm. so that whole area right there is all of our modern day uh panels that talk about Fort pillow i've also uh i grew up farming so one of the things that the farm that i farmed for on was an old antique sawmill so every year we'd open the sawmill up mainly in the winter we would cut timber and so we would take that old rough cut timber and he'd say now store that over in the shed and if we're ever needed down the road, we'll use it. And I said, okay, we never did need it. So I still deer hunt the same farm. And so when I go back, I'm like, I need to borrow some of that wood. I got to build a display. He's like, well, let's sit in the same spot you left it. So I'll get that wood. And uh, so we started building displays with it. So uh, before I get in the back room, there was also a wagon donated. We took that wagon because uh, are you familiar with a haversack? Yes. Okay, well, Hypersack is just a bag used by both Union and Confederate soldiers to carry the supplies they need throughout the day. Yeah. I wanted something to display a Hypersack. So I took that wagon. A gentleman that goes to church with me and his wife came in and hand sewed a canvas top for this wagon. Oh, so my. It looks like, a, a, like a, a true 
wagon that you would pull behind a mule or horse. And uh, so we got that. I got the haversack built up on the back of it. So I can stand behind the wagon and I can do haversack displays. I can dress up in Civil War clothes, do museum tours, and still have the haversack display. And so we've had several really good artifacts donated from cannonballs to uh, elevation pieces off Columbia cannons over the years since I've been here. And we've had cases for those and we've built those up and have those inside the displays as well. In the very back of the museum, the, the grant money from the Mississippi River Corridor didn't go into that room. So we applied for other grants and redone the signage throughout that room. I took the, the, the cannons that were already here. I built a display in the back where it was some soldiers in a picture uh, basically playing cards in camp. We rebuilt that. So it's got a tent, it's got a cannon, it's got a, uh, a limber in there. I took some of that wood and I built a fort wall all the way across the back for the cannon fort to resemble the fortification. Uh, with the suspension bridge being out, it's been out for going on 18 years. It's a two and a half mile hike to the fort and back. Right. Well, a lot of people can't make that hike. So I wanted them to be able to see uh, a glimpse of what a, a fortification would look like if they uh, can't the actual fortification. Right. And uh, I've also built another cannon fort. There were some, uh, when you were here, they would have been here. It would have been figurine cutouts of men and it had signs on the back of them. Yes, yes. That's were faded. So a gentleman locally donated uh, all those signs back to us. He ran me all those signs and donated them back to us. And so I took those men and put them behind the fence where you can see the front of them. I built a cannon port and put the signs all around it. And uh, then the, the last sign that I had made, I, I had a sign built and mounted on the wall that shows all those who died at the Battle of Fort Pillow. I saw that, I saw that uh, display on, online. It's quite, quite moving. Um, what, several hundred individuals listed? Yes, sir. Right. Um, I remember that, um, this, this, I, I believe it was from what I read in the story in the Smithsonian that that local uh, school children, many of them black, come visit and you will ask them to, if they recognize any of the surnames on the on the placard, and they, and they do. They do. Yeah. The, the school groups, we, you know, we got, we started doing a lot of school groups and started getting, uh, you know, several days a week having school groups and then COVID hit and all schools shut down all transportation. So we're getting back up now where we're getting regularly getting our school groups back. Plus we go to a lot of schools as well. Right. So uh, we, we have groups ranging from 120 kids to 600 kids. Goodness. And we have an extremely small staff. So uh, basically what I'll do, I uh, started a partnership years and years ago with the American Queen. You have the American Queen, American Duchess, and American Countless, the steamboats along the river. All right. They'll dock on the, on the Mississippi River and get on tour buses. I'll, I'll get guides and we'll dress out in Civil War clothing. We'll load onto these buses, come into the park and provide programs for them, and then take them back to the boat and they'll go to their next destination. So I've run my school groups, my large school groups, the same way because I have a small staff. So I right. rely heavily on volunteers. So we have living history presenters come in and they'll do cannon demonstrations, rifle demonstrations. I always conduct the museum tours throughout the museum and I'll put a group in the video. Uh, we had the Mississippi River Corridor redo those panels for us. At the same time, they also remade our video, which was another issue that a lot that I always heard growing up at this park was the video needed to be redone. Uh, I had some teachers complain about it 
And so the video was redone. It's more modern. Uh, get a lot of compliments on the video now. Mm -hmm. But that would have been done around the two, 2015 time frame as well as when we did the uh, panels. Robbie, you mentioned, you've mentioned the Mississippi River Corridor Group several times uh, as we've talked this morning. Um, tell us who that is. I, I, I sort of have a vague idea that, that this is a, a, a multi-state organization that's trying to promote uh, tourism and uh, activities up and down the river. Is that, am I correct about that's that? That's exactly what it is. Okay. Uh, they, uh, I'm not sure if they're still in, exist now or not. I have no idea from when they left Fort Pillow where they went to next. Uh, but when they were here, they were uh, they were here to, do, to help develop tourism opportunities for people along the Mississippi River. Right. Yeah, and that's that's so important that that you tap into that that resource yourself. Um, you know, if you if you as a, a manager out there were, were relying solely on on the folks up in here in Nashville at the in the planning division to to figure that sort of detail out that would it would just never happen um so uh, to credit to you to, for that you're reaching out and, and making use of those kind of of resources as they show themselves well you can you can come in the museum and i can show you panels and i can tell you the new era would have been on the mississippi river below the fort but if you were to go look at it today you'd be like there's no way that ship was on this little body of water, then right. you have to go into the change of the course of the river and all that. So right. uh, for me to be able to show them from water is a huge plus. Got you. So I've only, up until now, I've only been able to do it by canoe, but now that we have the ability to hopefully start this month with the pontoon tours, we can actually show them the area from the water. And that's gonna be a, a huge plus for people understanding the terrain that they're in when they're here. And why, where it's changed and how, how, how much, of a dramatic change the river made. So, let's talk a little bit about the the battle itself and and um, uh, the life circumstances that existed there at the fort just prior to the battle. You know, uh, four or five years ago, I did an interview about Fort Negley, that uh, the Union Fort that's here in Nashville, uh, and I learned a great deal uh, at that time about uh, when when the Union uh, had a fort um, that oftentimes uh, slaves that were black individuals who had been slaves or trying to escape slavery would um, consolidate around these Union forts for, for protection. Um, they were referred to as contraband, uh, which is a terrible thing to refer to a human being as contraband, but um, they were illegal at the time, I suppose. Um, did that, did that, uh, sort of activity show itself there at, at, uh, at Fort Pillow? Well, that's like in the notes that I have from the years and years that I've been here, that's what they were referred to as contraband camps. Right. And women and children would follow the Union Army for protection. Right. Oh, yes, women and children were present. Right. And, and so... Uh, when when the battle uh, occurred and and um, NB Forrest and his troops uh, overran the ran the fort, were many of those people swept up in the uh, in the massacre? You, you hear it from both sides. Okay. I hear uh, groups come in and they're like, according to this, women and children were loaded on the coal barges and and exited out 
you know, an hour and a half before the battle took place. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Even one story where the, the new era captain said the women and children and the, and the sick were loaded on the coal barges and uh, escorted out an hour and a half before the battle took place. And there's some in there that, that say that after the battle of Fort Pillow ended, they, there weren't any bodies of women and children present. Okay. Uh, so uh, you hear all these things, but you also hear women and children were killed during the battle of Fort Pillow, that they were, the men would drop to their knees and hold their hands up, you know, and was continuing to being killed by the Confederate army. Right. So you have all these different stories that come in. Some people are, are extremely strong one way or the other. I don't have a whole lot. The people who study Fort Pillow are the ones that are descendants of those who fought at Fort Pillow. They're extremely strong to what they believe. It's one way or the other. And so when you're talking about the history of Fort Pillow, if you got mixed groups, if you got some that are, or it was not a massacre, and some that was a massacre, you're not going to do a presentation without making somebody mad. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the, the one thing about Fort Pillow is you work to do everything you can to better everything you've got. But to be able to put everything in and portray all the history of Fort Pillow, you ain't a museum. I don't think I built a museum big enough for right. all the different, you know, that's why a lot of people say it's the biggest controversy of the Civil War. A lot of people argue that it is. Because there's so many different ways to tell the history of Fort Pillow. Got you. So, what, so what, my, what my role, what I feel I need to do is I, I work as hard as I can with the descendants that come here. Uh, we got to the point to where it was it was growing and growing and growing, just like the school groups, and then COVID hit. And now we're slowly but surely building it back up. So there's, there's a few ladies that I work with. And we do a wreath ceremony here at the park. Now, which so, which sort of ceremony now? These are wreath ceremonies for the descendants. Okay. Uh, we do a wreath ceremony here at the park, and uh, so they come in, and we'll we'll do uh, basically we do hay rides for them. They'll do a wreath ceremony at the flagpole at the museum. Uh, look around the museum, and we'll take transportation to the fort, and we'll do wreath ceremonies at the fort. They'll put white carnations out. Uh, sing songs uh they do that every year as close to the anniversary date as possible mm-hmm. they, they normally pick the saturday closest to it in april and then we also do a wreath ceremony at the national cemetery in memphis so you know after the battle for pillow a lot of what they would call homegrown yankees they would they came and picked up their loved ones after the battle the ones that were not went to the national cemetery in memphis so for years they did not know where they were located at so it was during the month of December, several years ago, they've got a list now that shows where they are. So every year we go to the National Cemetery. Uh, the group is growing each year. And uh, so they'll do a wreath ceremony. We place carnations on each of the grave markers. And uh, it's, 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 it's a really nice event. It, it, they were doing it in June to represent Juneteenth. And now they, they moved theirs this year to the actual anniversary date, April 12th. Okay. And uh, so we had both of them. So I attended the one in Memphis, and I had my staff attend the one here until I could get back. When I got back, they were already made their way to the fort, and then we finished the one up at the fort. So both of them were held on the same same day this year. Right. Which makes it a little difficult 
uh, to be able to do both. But if they have them at different time frames, then people can be can basically what I would like to be able to see if we're going to do an actual anniversary date would be have it at one location with a time gap long enough to get from that point to here right. for the for everybody to be able to see both. Right. Uh, that was one of the issues when people would call and they would say, what are you doing for the anniversary? And I'm like, well, we're having two different re-ceremonies. And I'll give the location of both. And they're like, well, which one should I go to? Uh-huh. Which one's the biggest? And I'm like, well, that goes back to the feelings. Right. You know, a lot of people feel that you need to be on site. And a lot of people need, feel you need to be at the National Cemetery. I said, so uh, basically, these are the two locations. I will be at both, one longer than the other one. And uh, you you feel free to come to either one. So, so am I am I correct in in my my recollection that the, after the battle itself, the there were the, the soldiers that had died were temporarily buried there on the site at Fort Pillow, but yes. then some years later they were moved into the into the uh, veteran cemetery in in uh, Memphis. A lot of them, their families came and and got. Them. Okay. So some of them were sent back to their home cemeteries, ones that you know locally that could can make it back. That's where they went. So these burials were individual burials, not a mass burial of anything. It'd be a mass grave. Okay. Well, how would they know who was who? It was uh, picking up their loved ones. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm not sure I understand. Uh, it wasn't years. Okay. Uh, yeah, it wasn't years. So they were still recognizable in, in actually, some in some. I've way. actually got a list that shows uh, the individual on that, but I don't have the exact date on it. Okay. No, okay. They were so it wasn't that long after the battle. The right. um, okay, very interesting. Now you are are developing and trying to trying to develop relationship with the with the families of of those that had died. Tell me about that. I mean, that must be fascinating to talk with those individuals. We've been, like I said, we've been doing it for years. Uh, and it, it, it was growing, like I said, until the COVID hit and that sort of ended it. So really want to be able to have it grow each and every year to the point to where they were, they were actually using the facilities and they were actually able to cook out and, uh, Families will come and, you know, and stay for the whole day. Right. And that's what we're trying to get back to. We're trying to get more involvement on it, uh, both places, here and at the National Cemetery. And uh, the ladies that are heading us up do a wonderful job. They work hard each and every year. They're very passionate about what they do. So it's, uh, I feel that it's going to continue to grow. Does, does the, the, is it a particular group that you're working with or, or is it just individuals? But it's, uh, I mean, it's mainly what I'm working with is individuals. Individuals, okay. Uh, now, in your park, do you have a friends organization that's active? We do. We have the Friends of Four Pillows, a very small group. Okay. Uh, it's basically a family, and they come in, and like when we have uh, a living history event where we do cannon demonstrations and rifle demonstrations and museum tours, we do that every year in April. They'll come in and, and set up like maybe a bake sale or something like that. And then all of our living history presenters that come in, all of our volunteers that come in and help, they actually raise money throughout the year and they feed those people when they come in for that. Mm-hmm. They buy, we have all of our uh, kid activities throughout the year, but we need prizes or whatever it might be. 
they fund all those activities throughout the year. So they're a huge help to us and they can, they can help us. For example, they raise money to buy the trailer from a pontoon boat. I got uh, you. I had transferred and have a trailer. So they raised money and bought the trailer for me for that. So I wouldn't be able to do these little river battery pontoon tours without, without them. So huge help with that. Well, the friends groups throughout our state park system are important. Uh, and uh, and the, the managers that are successful are, are trying to grow those groups and make them and make them successful. So, right. uh, the, now, do you have any, any, um, uh, any research on, ongoing research activity on the park by scholars of uh, universities, that sort of thing going on? We regularly receive phone calls, emails, and visits from different schools when people are writing a paper about certain things and they'll come out and look to the museum, ask questions, you know, get information about whatever the paper they might be writing. Uh, a lot of times we'll get professors from schools coming out, just looking to see what we got to see if they can perhaps set up a field trip to bring their kids out for, uh, you know, for a trip with us. Right. Uh, I had one, I had one this week. He was a, he was a, uh, a professor and he was looking to bring his, his kids out. So, it's pretty common for people writing books, especially people working on a master's degree that are working, you know, pertaining to something that involves Fort Pillow right. or Civil War in general. They just right. want to add a clip about Fort Pillow in that. Right. They'll come and uh, go do the research on that for that. Right. But there's not none, uh, no ongoing uh, archaeology digs or anything like that in the park. No. no. Okay. Well, interesting. So you have, you mentioned the the uh, bridge uh, that I guess had been there at one time and, and uh, that would take a person out to the fort site itself. To, what, what happened and, and are you endeavoring to get that replaced? Okay, so the park was built in 71. To my knowledge, the very first suspension bridge that was built would have been in the early 80s. Okay. Uh, that bridge was taken down in the early 90s and another bridge was put in. A more modern style suspension bridge was put in. Okay. The the good thing about this bridge is from the museum to the fortification, it's a half a mile distance. With the bridge being out, I've got to bypass that gully that goes between the museum and the fort. Right, right. So I have to basically go two and a half miles round trip to get the people who want to hike to the fort there and back. A lot of people can't make that hike. Right. Uh, for example, if I've got 150 kids on a school group and they arrive at, say, 930 in the morning, if I do a museum tour, a video and a haversack program, we hike to the fort and back, it's time for them to go back to school. Right. Don't have time for recess. Don't have time to play on the playground. They don't have time for any of those things. It's right. A lot of times they, they eat on the bus on the way back. Right. So the bridge is crucial for me to be able to get all of our activities in in a normal time frame in a school field time frame, school trip time frame. Uh, so it went out. I've been here, like I said, since May of 2000. The year that I got manager, right at that time frame is when the bridge started failing. Okay. Uh, me and the ranger at, at the time was walking over there, and we noticed that it's severe erosion around one of the concrete banks. Oh, I see. And uh, so I closed it. I contacted Nashville. They come out and looked at it. We actually rebuilt it in-house. I own 30 acres off the park. I donated dirt off my own land, and we built up with six by sixes uh, a wall all around in front of the bridge, and we packed it full of dirt, 
ran cables from it, put a sediment basin in, and everything looked good. Well, one huge tree, mature tree to the right of this fort, give way, roots and all. And when it did, it pulled the bank with it, and everything we did went right. <laughs> so we have, that's one of our issues, is we have severe erosion concerns here, windblown silt bluffs. So, right. Yeah, the uh, soils there are just as fine as uh, flour. I mean, it, they are. It'll, just, it'll just wash. So uh, we've, I've been raising money ever since. Uh, the local power companies donated quite a bit of money. Different individuals donate money for it. Uh, we, I had a meeting uh, Tuesday, a schematic design meeting. So they're in that phase. Okay. So the new bridge date, if it, if it takes that long, would be March of 2025. Okay. Of that time frame, 300 days of that is the building of the bridge. Right. We need nowhere near that. So we're hoping by sometime next year to have to have the bridge completed. Oh, dynamite! So that we can have, you know, visitors can make it to the Ford back in a timely manner. Dynamite. We're also looking, you know, state parks are are trying to make it to where you can access trails more easily. Uh, with this bridge being up, without the bridge, a two and a half mile trip to the Ford back is out of the question for so many. But with right. the bridge being up uh, and us being able to use the money that I've raised to go along with the money that was given to for the bridge, I hopefully I can do trail upgrades going to and from the bridge and from the bridge to the fort and back to where it opens up transportation for people pushing strollers and possibly, hopefully, even wheelchairs. Right. So that's that's the goal is to make it to where now if somebody shows up, we do this very commonly. If they show up on their own and make it to the fort and they want to see the fort, I will get them to the fort. I'll put them in my truck and drive them if I need to. Okay. But I will get them to the fort. Right. Uh, that's important to me for them. If they're here and they want to see it, if it's why I'm, I'm able to do it, I'll get them to the fort. Sure enough. Well, Robbie, what is what other other than the bridge is in is in the future there at Fort Pillow? Well, as far as what I've got, of course, I went over the what I'm wanting to do. What else I want to do with the campground? Uh, we just put in that observation deck, which is a, a huge hit. People are loving that. Uh, and of course the bridge, another thing that I want to do when during the, during Fort Pillow, the time April in April, you know, the total time frame, they had cabins at the fort that would have been located outside the fort. A lot of people come in here that really want to see those cabins. They want to see, they want to go in a cabin, feel the cabin, see the cabin, all that. So one of my goals have always been to build a replica of one of the cabins that would have been here during that time frame. I don't know uh, if I would do it at the actual fortification because I'm extremely limited, the people who can see it, compared to if I had it in another area with a parking area, right. people can drive up to and get out and see it, you know, and have signage that explains to them this would have been at the fortification. Right. So what it would have been made out of, here's the dimensions, the size. That is a, another goal of mine, but I really want to have the bridge intact until we before we make up our mind where this where, to, where to do that mm -hmm. and these would have been cabins for uh housing of the soldiers themselves or okay yes. right right well robbie i want to thank you so much for your spending some time with me today and and uh, helping us learn a bit about what's going on there at fort pillow it's been a joy to speak with you and i congratulate you on on what you're doing i sure appreciate it it's an honor to be on here with you all right